Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Micah Fox. If you think I'm going to murder you, why don't you get up and try to leave? (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform that makes building your own website simple and easy. Squarespace has absolutely beautiful templates, integration with Google Apps and Getty Images, and very responsive design. For a free trial and 10% off your first order, go to squarespace.com and enter the code RISK. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Also, you know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just the click of a mouse? Can't get more convenient. And now you can get all of your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Then you just hand your mail to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Wax Beach. Behind me now, I'm thrilled to see that we have so many new listeners. Welcome. If you don't already know, on Risk, we say that nothing is inappropriate until something probably is. We give as much support and encouragement to all of our storytellers not to hold back not to censor themselves, not to whitewash anything. So on risk, no story is too kinky or too shocking or horrifying or too beautiful and profound. It's absolutely true that most of these stories you'd never hear on public radio. So it's not just risky for our storytellers to be opening up about some of the things they share, but it's risky for you as a listener sometimes because you never know when an episode might go from hilarious to downright traumatic. That's why we say the entire title of the series, the the word risk in the title, should be seen as a sort of a trigger warning. Sometimes a fan will write in and say, hey, I really had to turn the episode off when I got five minutes into that one particular story. And I'll say, that's perfectly okay. You got to do what you got to do to take care of yourself. 
So again, for the newbies, that's our deal. Uh, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be doing our job if you were perfectly comfortable with every story. We're calling today's episode hazardous. There's either real or imagined danger lurking in all these stories today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the fabulous Tara Clancy, a New York-based storyteller. But first, the comedian Micah Fox, host of the podcast Micah Fox and Friends, and this week in Jackin. <laughs> <laughs> Here she is now at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call The Dan Show. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, all I've ever wanted in my life is to become a comedy writer. And when I graduated college, I had no experience doing that, but I knew it would mean I wouldn't do any hard work. So the second I graduated, I went on over to Craigslist to find my comedy job. And uh, Im immediately I found an ad that said, needed head writer for a sketch comedy show. I was like, oh, there we go. And so I, I applied for it. I told him I'm a comedy writer, and you know, why not? I just wrote that. And uh, the guy emailed me back right away and was like, hey, great, you're a comedy writer, I need a thing, here's the show. My name is Dan. Uh, the show's gonna be called The Dan Show. I'm Dan the Man Trabondi. And uh, it's a sketch show, and uh, so we're gonna have sketches, and I'll play all the characters, and that's where you come in, you write that. And then we'll also do interviews, you know, interviews with interesting people, like strippers. And uh, we're also going to do, you know, just reality TV, because my life is amazing. And. And I was like, oh, you know, th that's wonderful. If Fox wants to make a, a show about you, because in the ad it had said it was for a, a Fox affiliate. And he's like, even better. Have you heard of Xena Warrior Princess? And I, uh, yeah. And he says, well, what they did is they created that show by themselves. And they bought airtime like an infomercial. And they built up an audience. And they sold their own airtime. And they became millionaires. And uh, he's like, and that's what we're going to do. And um, I had uh, only done cocaine a couple of times in my life before that. So I didn't know I was talking to an old cokehead. Uh, so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, sign me up. And he's like, whoa, 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 you know, I got to give you a writing test. I'm like, yes, yes, a writing test. He's like, in the first episode, I'm definitely going to have a sketch about Saddam Hussein. And he's got his own line of champagne. And it's called Saddam Perignon. <laughs> and... Uh, so you write that sketch and get back to me. In my head, I was like, okay, I don't know that much about comedy, but I do know that he's trying to get a whole sketch out of a pun, so I gotta be better than that. Uh, so, um, so I write the sketch, I think he had a talking donkey, probably racist, and, and he, uh, he writes me back, you're hired. And I'm like, yes, of course I am. Uh, you know, I'm like, I'm a 21-year-old head writer for a Fox show, you know, me and David Spade. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're both from Scottsdale, this is totally gonna work out. And he's like, great, so uh, you'll come here, we'll write for two weeks and we'll film the whole thing. You know, just come and meet me in my house first and, and, and it'll be great. And, uh, no. <laughs> and I was like, sure, why not? So I pack up my car and I uh, told my family goodbye forever. <laughs> uh, I'm off to become famous or get murdered. Uh, you know, because uh, it was 21-year-old logic. I, you know, it did cross my mind that this guy could kill me, but I didn't care 
because uh, this was like this great opportunity, you know? Because <laughs> I was like, if I don't go, I won't become famous. If I do go, I could become famous or I'll get murdered. You know, and in that like, ven uh, you know, whatever those squares are, I was like, the only way to become famous is to go, so you gotta go. So uh, this is the only opportunity I'll ever have in my whole life. So. I get in my car and uh, I'm living in LA at the time. I drive straight to Vegas, no stops, just pedal to the metal. I meet him at his house and uh, his house is not on the strip. It's not Vegas exciting. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the suburbs of Vegas, but it is the cemetery where hopes die. <laughs> it is, it's just tracked homes that are the tombstones of hope. Um, and it's, it's sad and quiet and still, and everyone's given up. I pull into this driveway, and his house is different only in that it has a limo parked out front. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, this must be the place. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I get out, and I leave all my stuff in the car, and I'm so excited, and I ring the doorbell, and I hear from the other side, who the fuck is there? And, <laughs> and I'm like, um, Micah, uh, I'm your writer. <laughs> you know, and I'm like realizing how fucking nuts this is. You know? and, um, and you hear like, unlock, 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 unlock. And he opens the door and um, he's just this mid 40s Frankenstein with a full head of hair, you know, skin of a 60 year old. And uh, he's got these Ritalin eyes, you know. <laughs> he was like staring right at me, but they wouldn't hold focus. <laughs> And uh, he doesn't say anything at first, and he gives me the full up and down. You know, just like the scan down, scan up. And he goes, ah, you're mousier than I expected. <laughs> I'm just like, but you're paying me to write, right? <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, I guess so. Come on in. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. Uh, <laughs> I did it, um, and uh, I grab my laptop and I run in. And he's like dragging me into his like mini mansion, which is what happens in Vegas. You know, like the kind with like the inset arches that a lot of people would put a crucifix in, but he just had a pack of gum. <laughs> and he's like, "Hurry up! We got a crew meeting in an hour, so get all your sketches ready to present to them." And I'm like, "Holy shit! Uh, I haven't written anything in my life, so I better get started." And uh, he sets me up at the dinner table, and he goes upstairs probably to do a bunch of blow and kill a hooker. And <laughs> as he's going up. Downstairs comes this beautiful woman, gorgeous, uh, like with long brown hair and uh, rainbow knee highs, you know, like that. And she walks up to me and she's like, hi, my name's Ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, of course it is. And she goes, spelled X-T-C. And I was like, I think I knew that. <laughs> um, and, and she's like, she's like, listen, um, so there's a couple things you gotta know about Dan, okay? He's told you he's gonna put you up in a hotel, but he's not gonna wanna do that. He's not gonna wanna pay for that. So he's gonna offer you to stay here with us. And if you don't say yes, he's gonna fire you. And I'm like, wait, what? You know, and uh, she's like, don't ask questions. We don't have time. I'm like, what? <laughs> she's like, it's cool because I'm his girlfriend and I'll be here and it'll be really fun and the hotel is a real shithole. Oh, I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay, she's like, okay. And she's like, and there's another thing. And I'm like, what? And he, she goes, oh shit, he's coming back. I'm like, fuck. Um, <laughs> and so he comes downstairs and he's like, are you ready for the meeting? And then all of a sudden, all these people start coming and he had a whole crew come in from LA and he starts this crew meeting and I pitch all these things and it's happening and I'm the only woman except for ecstasy. And, uh, 
And it was very exciting. The crew meeting ends, and everybody leaves, and then Dan the man Sherbandi proposes to ecstasy, and, and she says, you know I don't love you. <laughs> and she leaves. And I'm there alone with Dan the man Sherbandi, and I've agreed to stay there instead of a hotel. And so it's quiet. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll go upstairs and hide now. <laughs> and he was like, not so fast. I was like, knew it. Uh, he's like, I want to show you the last project I worked on. It was a reality show. I'm like, all right. So we sit down and there's two armchairs and a huge TV. He turns on his reality show, but it was really just a silent film of people in his house being filmed and they didn't know it. <laughs> and... Um, and I was scared. <laughs> you know, I'm looking around for the cameras like, I'm being filmed right now. This is the show. I'm not being hired to write. I'm being hired to... to this is a snuff film. And he senses, he senses um, that I'm getting nervous. So he looks over at me and says, Do you think I'm going to murder you? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. <laughs> And he's like, well, if you think I'm going to murder you, why don't you get up and try to leave? (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) And I I get up real slow, you know, and uh, I grab my laptop that was on the table, and slow movements, people, you know, because I don't know what I think he's going to have a sledgehammer in my neck if I go quick. Just walk into the door every second being like, I'm getting murdered. I'm getting murdered. I, and I make it to the front door and I'm like, my hand touches the doorknob and I'm shocked. And uh, the second it touches the doorknob, I fling the door open and I run out the door and I get into my car and I turn it on and I'm driving down this fucking tombstone of a shithole Vegas thing and it's all the same and I'm lost and I find a 7-Eleven and I'm like, you're my beacon of hope and I get into the parking lot and I'm like panting, I'm like breathing, I'm sweating, holy shit, I almost fucking died. I, you know, and I'm looking at yourself and I'm like, Waco, what are you doing? You're about to pass up the biggest opportunity that ever happened to you. <laughs> you know, and I gave myself, I gave myself the final speech. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, the final speech, uh, if you've ever been drunk or drugged enough in a, in a bar bathroom to look at yourself in the eyes like it's the last time. <laughs> and I look at myself and I'm like, hello and goodbye, old friend. <laughs> you know, I, I already told everyone I was about to become famous. And I gave myself a long look and I was like, you know what, he didn't kill you yet. So I turned my car back around and I went to his house. And I opened the door and it was still unlocked. And I walk in and he's still in the chair watching his creepy ass show. And uh, he was like, ah, you thought I was gonna murder you. (laughs) And I was like, I still do. (laughs) But I'm here to work. And uh, we spent the next two weeks uh, making this show and it was a real piece of shit, but it did air and I got my $200 and I stole a bunch of his weed. Um, and it's still on my resume today. Thanks. You know, just come and meet me in my house first and, and, and it'll be great. And, uh... <laughs>
New York. Uh, growing up, I spent a lot of time in my family's local bar, uh, and it was owned by my uh, my uncle Sal. And not to scrimp on description, but he was just uh, exactly what you think an uncle Sal would be. Uh, and so the bar was like you know it was like a local dive, you know, like a working class, working guys bar, you know, the kind of place like where we had. We had regulars, you know, and all the regulars had nicknames, and they, and they were just like, you know, they were like they were cool, but it was also, you know, you realize they kind of like boiled the person down to their most base physical quality, right? For example, my favorite, uh, Goiter Eddie, <laughs> who actually, uh, who actually just as easily could have been called Oxygen Tank Eddie, uh, because not only did he have like this giant goiter under his chin, uh, but he also had a, an oxygen tank. He like wheeled a fucking oxygen tank into the bar with him and like put it down at his, next to his bar still. Uh, all right, so we had other guys, you know, we had like, we had guys that were like, you know, we had like Big Joe, you know, who was big. And we had Black Joe, who was black. And we had one arm Joe, who actually had one fucking arm, right? Uh, and there was a bunch of guys who were also given nicknames kind of like based on the work that they did. So, you know, you had like, you know, Jimmy Ice Cream, he sold ice cream. And, you know, like Vinny the Fish, he sold fish. He worked at the fish market. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to these guys than, you know, their jobs or their goiters. But getting to know them wasn't exactly easy. Uh, and even though you kind of like didn't know the first thing about these guys, um, people judge them. And by people, I mean me. <laughs> so I'm working a day shift. And since 10 o'clock in the morning, it has just been me and a guy named Joe Bird. Regular, right? Uh, and now Joe drank Budweiser, nothing but Budweiser, never short of a case with or without the help of his brother Billy, who was a lot shorter and a much worse drunk, uh, but who had a little more front teeth. Uh, and at this point, I am like in college, I'm 21 years old, and I just kind of think that I am better than these guys that I have grown up with. I mean, basically like a little fucking shit. Uh, and <laughs> Uh, Joe was Joe and his brother had both come from South Boston, right? And they had these like you know these like South Boston accents. They always wore work boots and and jeans, and they had like flannels. And I kind of like figured that they were 
in construction, but I never actually asked. They never actually offered. All right, so two hours go by. Joe's still sitting there drinking buds. I'm still bartending. I order up some Chinese food. Chinese food delivery guy comes. And I end up getting into a fight with the guy because they had overcharged me. Guy doesn't understand. We just keep going back and forth. It's getting like really, really heated. He wants me to pay. I won't pay. It gets so big that we get into such a big fight that Joe actually comes around the bar and he gets in between us, right? And at this point, I kind of wince. I kind of, I kind of look away because Joe is like this super tough guy. I'm like, he's, he's just gonna fucking clock him, right? And I, I wince. But what I hear next shoots my eyes right back open. Joe Bird is speaking to this guy slowly uh, and calmly and completely in Chinese. <laughs> this guy, all right, this guy who just a fucking second ago was like drinking a bottle of Bud and eating a bag of Fritos for breakfast, okay? This guy who I have known for like years and years on end, this guy who's like a fucking toothless Wahlberg, all right? This guy is like rattling on and on in fluent fucking Chinese, right? I mean, it is like, it is unbelievable, right? And they seem to be like patching things up and they're like, you know, patting each other on the back and they're doing whatever that thing, you know, like they're saying like everything's cool bro in Chinese, it looks like, right? Uh, and the guy trots on out and Joe sits down at the fucking bar and he takes a little sip of his beer like nothing's ever happened. And I'm in a fucking state of shock, right? Like I, I, I can't say anything. I'm just, I'm just staring at him. And so finally, Joe does. He goes, all right, I sell pigeons. <laughs> My mouth says nothing. My eyebrows say, what the fuck? <laughs> he goes, in Chinatown, right? I still don't say anything. He goes, a couple of years back, I expanded the business. I started selling them in Hong Kong, too. And you know, my brother, he doesn't speak Cantonese, and it really holds him back. <laughs> I, I, still, I still don't say anything. And then, Finally, he goes, listen, listen, I, I know it's all weird, but my father started the business years ago, and it was all just an accident, right? That did it. Joe, I go, how the fuck do you accidentally sell a pigeon, right? <laughs> so Joe tells me, all right, here's how you accidentally sell a pigeon. Uh, his father, like 50 years earlier, is driving through uh, Boston with a pickup truck full of cages of his racing pigeons. He raced pigeons, right? And he stops at a light in Chinatown in Boston and a Chinese woman approaches him in the, in the, in the car and asks to buy one uh, and he's kind of caught off guard and he sort of explains that he's like trained them himself and this is his hobby and then, you know, he hasn't really, not, they're not really for sale and she's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to race them, I want to eat them. <laughs> And a little, a little light bulb goes off. Wait for it. Uh, street pigeons. Huh? Street pigeons are fucking talentless, but they are edible, and more importantly, they are completely free, presuming you can figure out how to catch one of these motherfuckers, right? Uh, and so they figure out exactly how to do that. Uh, and I can tell you how it is done because Joe showed me later it is 
unfucking believable it is an amazing thing you do uh, it's like this one fluid motion you basically go up to said street pigeon uh, and you get about a foot away and you sort of do this thing it's like it's one really quick motion you stomp they fly you clap bam pigeon <laughs> Sounds easy, but it, it really isn't. Uh, anyway, they got this whole shit down to a science, and so the family business was born, right? Now, of course, all of this is like completely illegal, right? So the like bird boys like kept the business a secret. Uh, anyway, while it was the father that got the whole thing started, it was like Joe that took it to the next level, right? It's like Joe, it's like, you know, like Joe did, like what McDonald's did for the hamburger, Joe Bird did for the street picture, right? <laughs> Guy's a fucking mogul, right? He like took me to his apartment later and it was filled with like jade Buddhas and you know, antique bamboo furniture and all this shit. Anyway, the point is, I guess, uh, that, uh, <laughs> the point is that I am an idiot. Uh, and for two reasons. Up until this very moment, I thought that Bird was his real last name. <laughs> And two, you know, here I was like working in my family business, but also sort of like, you know, thinking I was better than everybody because I was in college and oh man, didn't that fucking make me ambitious, you know, only to find out that these people I thought I was better than, you know, actually like taught themselves Cantonese to be secret international criminal pigeon dealers. You know? <laughs> How's that for ambition, you know? Anyway, Joe was kind of like a, he was a pretty hard living guy. So I think that as far as where he is today, it's like there's an equal chance that he OD'd as much as like he's heading a department for Google, you know? <laughs> it could go either way. Uh, but without him, I don't think I ever would have had this, this sort of thought one day and it's important. So I'm, I'll, I'll end it with this. Um, I was working the shift one day, early in the morning, about like nine in the morning, and there's only one guy in the bar, and he's sitting in the last stool right by the window. And there's a guy walking to work, and he's in a business suit, and he's got his briefcase, and he's obviously walking to work. And he's staring in the bar window, and my bar regular is staring right back at him. And they're just looking at each other, and I'm looking at them. And I don't, I don't think they realize it. But I realize it for the first time that they're both thinking the exact same thing. And that is, poor guy. Wow. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Johnny Marr behind me now. And we just heard from the wonderful Tara Clancy. You can find Tara on Twitter 
at Tara Clancy NYC. I mentioned earlier that Squarespace is one of our sponsors for this episode. If you've never at least been to squarespace.com, definitely give it a look because you're going to be blown away by how beautiful the websites people create through Squarespace are. There's a remarkable variety of templates that just look gorgeous, and they integrate with all sorts of devices. It'll look just as good on a phone as on a laptop. State-of-the-art design and functionality, they integrate with Google Apps and Getty Images for a free trial and 10% off your first order. Go to squarespace.com and enter the code RISK. You will be happy you did. Our last storyteller today has his own storytelling podcast, The Lapse. Be sure to check that out. It is available on iTunes and at thelapse.org. Now, this is also a challenging story of the sort that I was referring to at the top of the episode. So be aware of that. But we're really thrilled that Kyle uh, reached out to us and offered to share this one with us. Here he is now, Kyle Guest, with a story we call Jeremy. I'd been a fat boy for most of my life. I was occasionally bullied and increasingly shy and trying desperately to pretend that I wasn't. I guess that's why halfway through sixth grade, this other slightly standoffish kind of heavy set kid showed up and Mr. Wheatley said, hey, Kyle, why don't you show Jeremy around? He had this kind of unusual look to him. He was maybe native, part native. It was hard to tell, but it was mostly in the eyes, these dark kind of narrow slits but this otherwise fair complexion. I gave him the grand tour of the school, the library, the gym. Uh, when we passed by the computer lab, our typing teacher was Mrs. McIntosh. And I told him that. I said, I swear to God, that is her actual honest to God name. He thought that was pretty funny. He said, actually, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the principal told me about her. I, I, hear, I hear she's kind of a bitch. I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> actually, actually, she, she is kind of a bitch. So I wasn't wildly popular in elementary, but I had friends, and I thought that Jeremy could be another one of those friends. But that week, I had my back turned, and Jeremy wrote Jew on the rear of my Nike t-shirt in big pink highlighter. And I said, what the fuck, man? <laughs> that shirt was expensive. Why did you do that? And he just laughed, and he said nothing. He took another swipe and made a vertical line down the front of my shirt, and I, I wasn't Jewish, for the record, but I was getting pretty pissed off. So I said, fine. And I grabbed another highlighter and I took a swipe across his shirt. And he pushed me and he shoved me against my desk and he said, don't write on my fucking shirt. But I was as big as he was, so I shoved him back. And I took a swipe at his shirt and I said, fine, that you don't write on my fucking shirt, okay? We're even, right? And I put down my highlighter 
to demonstrate a truce. And he took his and swiped it across my face, opening about an inch-long gash along my right cheek. And he said, yeah, now we're even. It was much safer to stay on Jeremy's good side, even if he was being a prick, because as far as he was concerned, I actually was his friend. Maybe I, I, was, I was confused because I didn't like him. Like, not really. It was just this bewildering whiplash back and forth of, he's a nice guy? He's a bad guy. He's a nice guy. He's a bad guy. Like, take the first day I gave Jeremy my lunch money, which is a classic bully staple, right? He didn't beat me up, and I didn't get a swirly, and he didn't flip me over and empty my pockets. He just asked me. He said, Kyle, can I borrow a dollar? And so long as he paid me back, I obliged. I said, that was fine. The truth was, he did pay me back, almost always. And if he was late, he would actually double it. He'd pay me back twice what I lent him, which is surprisingly generous, right? But after about a month of this, this give and take, this back and forth, Jeremy wanted more money. He was always tough to read because he was very stoic. He didn't have much in the way of expression on his face. So he said, sure, man, no problem, but you got to pay me back first. He weighed those words. He said, why can't I have a dollar now? And I said, will you still owe me a dollar, Jeremy? It wouldn't make any sense if I lent you one now. You got to pay me back. And he sacked me with his fist right in the balls and I crumpled. And he loomed over me and said, you don't trust me? I'm supposed to be your friend. Now lend me a fucking dollar or you get nothing. I lent him his dollar and he paid me back. Jeremy kept the hunting knife in his pocket, which he brought to school for utility, he said. But it wasn't the threat of violence that scared me about Jeremy. The kicks and the punches and the jabs. It was just not knowing when they were coming. It was the smiling through gritted teeth and pretending that, yeah, you know, a meter stick across my knuckles was pretty funny. In an effort to start anew and to get away from Jeremy, I picked the least popular school, the one that most of the other kids weren't going to. My friend Sean, my good friend, was going there, but I kept it a secret from everybody else. I shuffled off and put it in this teacher's stack, and when Jeremy asked me, Kyle, which school are you going to, I made something up, and I said something along the lines of... I actually don't know. I, I chose one at random. I don't even remember. He went off to the stack and went through it. And before I could do or say anything, he checked and saw, there it was, Garibaldi. And he marked off the same on his. On the first day of high school, I met Jeremy in the hallway. He ducked low like he was going to deck me, like he usually does. But he stopped short and put this thin-lipped smirk on his face. And he opened his palm. And he wanted me to shake it. He said, I think we should have a truce between us. As if I was the instigator in any of this shit, but I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Let's have a truce. So I shook his hand and the bell rung and we went our separate ways. And then I realized what I had just done. I just cemented the friendship with Jeremy that I never wanted to begin with. To his credit, he doesn't hit me as much. Uh, He does get bigger and he does hit harder, though. Not that I give him the satisfaction. I never react like it hurts. The other kids, they notice this. And when they ask me, doesn't that hurt? I tell them that, no, actually, I have this really high pain tolerance. 
and I don't actually feel anything. It's, it's senseless. I don't feel a thing. And they test that theory. So they actually start to hit me too. And even though I'm black and blue and green underneath my shirt, and every time they're hitting my shoulder, it is excruciating, I keep this poker face because I don't want to let this demoralize me, and I will not let them call my bluff. Instead, I start avoiding the hallways at lunchtime. And I don't miss them much because Jeremy liked to play this game he called, I'm going to take your backpack and you're going to chase me for an hour. And if you don't, I will hide it and you will never find it again. My buddy Sean and I spend our lunches lifting weights at the gym in the high school. We get stronger, real strong actually, but it doesn't matter because Jeremy decides to follow suit And before long, it becomes this kind of competition between us of who's getting the stronger. (sighs) I started skipping class, a lot of class, a whole month straight at one point, long enough that everyone actually thought I dropped out of school. So when I came back, the only lie that I could think of that would justify that long a departure was that my grandmother died which is the worst lie I have ever told, but I was desperate and it was the only thing I could think to say. So I told them my grandmother died. They wouldn't let me make up my assignments and I was going to fail five of my classes and I only had eight of them. So I begged my mom to write me a note. And when I say begged, I mean, I literally begged on my hands and knees to my mother to write me this note that my grandmother died. And I guess because I was an A student and I was used to being able to get straight A's or at least A's and B's, she wrote me that note. The problem was that I had earned an association with Jeremy. We were two peas in a pod as far as my teachers were concerned because we were always together. So despite the fact that I was an A student in their eyes, I was a delinquent just as bad as the little shit in class carving swastikas into the desks. So when I handed in the note to my socials teacher, Mr. Silva, he barely glanced at it. He looked at me and he actually accused me to my face. He said, Kyle, did you forge this note? And I said, no, which was the truth. I I didn't forge the note. It was written by my mother. If you'd ever seen my writing, I had potatoes for hands and my mother had kind of beautiful handwriting. But he promised me that if I did all my assignments every single one that I'd missed, he might just pass me with a C minus. It was the best deal I could have got. So I really buckled down. I had a week to do all of these and I did every single one of them, one after the other. And I handed them in and I got my grades back and they were B's until I looked further down the sheet and I saw that he had taken off 50% for lateness. And I'm not very good at math, but I'm pretty sure that 100 minus 50 is still a fucking F, which means that I never stood a chance to begin with. So I fail five out of eight of my classes, and I'd be repeating the ninth grade. On the upside, it was summertime, which meant for me, no Jeremy and a pile of video games. I did my best to avoid him. He knew where I lived and he spent time with some other friends of mine, but I spent most of my time isolating myself. I like to play video games and I like to hang out with some of my friends online, but that was the extent. I didn't make a lot of new friends in high school. About midsummer, 
I get a call from my friend Sean. He says, Kyle, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, you bet. I'm playing Metal Gear Solid 2 right now. I'm absolutely sitting down. What can I help you with? He said, Jeremy stole my brother's car. He what? Well, what are you talking about? He stole your brother's car. Jeremy came over. We hung out late. He was crashing on my couch downstairs. And when everyone went to sleep, he stole my brother's car. And I said, how do you know it was him? Are you sure? He, he said, yeah, my brother Colin heard his engine start up. He looked out the window and there was Jeremy booking it off in his car. The car turned up on the side of the road with a couple of valuables missing, but Jeremy was nowhere to be found. The question for me wasn't why Jeremy stole the car, because Jeremy did a lot of things for no fathomable reason. The question for me was, what was his out here? Was he planning to drive cross-country with it and make a break for it? Was he just planning to go to jail? Was he going to come back to school and say, hey man, sorry I stole your brother's car? I didn't understand what his plan was. So the new year rolls around, and I don't know if he's dead or he's dropped out or he's been abducted by aliens, but Jeremy is not at school. I'm waiting for this wave of relief to wash over me, but it doesn't come. I just feel sort of empty because most of my classes this year are with kids a year behind me. So not only am I the fat kid in school, but I'm the stupid kid in school. So all I want to do is miss more school. The principal warns me that if I miss more than a day a month, he's going to come to my house and personally drag me back to school. But I honestly cannot sleep. I can't function. I'm full of anxiety. So by the second week, I'm already skipping class. I wake up to the sound of my doorbell at 11 a.m. Mom and dad are at work. My sister's at school. And I can't see the front door from my bedroom, but I have a feeling that I'm in trouble. I move slowly because if it is my principal, I don't want him to know that I'm home. The doorbell rings and I peer around the corner just enough to see through the frosted glass it's Jeremy. He knocks this time, putting his hands against the glass, trying to peer in, and I duck behind the corner. My heart is in my throat because I can't think of a good reason he'd be here. He stole my friend's car. He's been missing for months, and as far as he knows, I should be at school. When I look back, though, he's gone, until I hear the sound of furniture being dragged in my backyard. And I realize that the door to our deck is open for the cats and I'm just, I'm frozen and I don't know what to do. And before I can do anything, he's climbed up the balcony and he's in my kitchen and we're standing face to face. Like two deer in headlights, neither of us is certain what to do next. There's not a word exchanged. My dog, a golden retriever, gives him a sniff and wags her tail excitedly. And I always thought if I found an intruder in my house, the first thing I would do is go for a weapon or call for help or run. But nothing is registering. It's just Jeremy and his hand in his pocket. I know that he keeps a hunting knife on him. And I know that he's unpredictable, but I don't know if he'll hurt me. So I do the only defense I've ever known to work against Jeremy, and I treat him like my friend. I say, Jeremy, wow, it's been a while. I haven't seen you in forever. Are you going to a different school now? What's up? He says, yeah, I'm going to, to MRSS. 
I said, oh yeah, with, uh, with Ross and Chris and those guys, right? He says, yeah, listen, um, I gotta meet somebody, I'm sorry, I gotta go. And he takes off through the front door and I'm panicked. I tell my parents that we need to get a security system because I feel like he's gonna come back. They, they try to assuage me and they tell me, Kyle, go to school. He's not going to come back. You already caught him once. He'd have to be an idiot. But I know that Jeremy is not the sharpest knife in his pocket. He does things for no fathomable reason. But it's not open for discussion. I'm to go to school. The next week, I call my mom, as I do every time I get home from school. And I'm walking around the living room when I trip over something. I say, hey, mom, the cat's knocked the DVD player off the stand. This overwhelming sense of anxiety hits me. I look down the hallway, and my bedroom door, which I always keep shut, is sprung wide open, and I sprint down the hallway. My mom is asking me what's wrong, and I look, and everything from my video games to my systems to my movies, my entire collection of electronics is gone. It's gone. I call the police, and I give them a description of Jeremy. We do a search of the house, and it looks like he broke in through a window, but there's no way that he himself would have fit. So the officer says maybe it wasn't him, but I know that that's not true. I know that Jeremy couldn't fit, but I know that he has accomplices and friends and people a lot smaller than him that certainly could. Sure enough, the officer, a mere day later, drives by Jeremy, toting around my PlayStation 1, a single item he couldn't sell because it had stickers all over the lid. And the officer says, you know, if it's any consolation, Jeremy says that he's sorry. And I would have felt bad for him, maybe, just a little, but the next day he's already out and he's having coffee with his friend across from my mom's store. Because he's only 15, it turns out, he can't be tried in an adult court, which means that between the car and the thousands of dollars in electronics he's been stealing and whatever else he's been doing in his absence, I wonder how invincible he must think he is. I become increasingly paranoid. I'm terrified that he's going to come back to my house a third time. I'm afraid to sleep in my own house because maybe next time I won't wake up in time for him. Maybe he won't be so nice to me. Maybe I won't be able to leave my house because if my sister's home and I'm not, what would happen to her? I'm afraid to be in my house and I'm afraid to be out of it. So I drop out of high school. I can't go anymore. That's it. I'm done. About a month goes by of this. By now, I've disconnected the metal bar from my weight set because there are knocks on my door when nobody's there, because I can hear people whispering in my basement, and because if I sleep too long, I know that he's going to come back. It's five in the morning, and a thump hits my door. I leap out of bed, and I sprint down the hallway turn on all the outside lights. It's the newspaper delivery. Might as well be up for the day, so I read it. Front page says something about, um... Oh. Ross. Ah, he was one of the dorkier kids from my elementary school. I hadn't seen him in a while, but his mom, Colleen, she took the siblings to school every day. Yesterday... She came home to a stranger in the house. Well, uh, she realized not 
quite a stranger. She knew this person, but this person, he shouldn't have been there. When he realizes he's been caught, this heavy-set kid, he hits her. She tries to fight him off, but while he might only be 15, he's much stronger than she is. He improvises, finds a roll of duct tape, binds her arms, pulls down her pants, and he rapes her. When he's finished, she tells him to take what he wants and go. He says he's sorry, but it's too late for that. He tapes her eyes shut, he tapes her mouth shut, and he slits her throat with the hunting knife he keeps in his pocket. But Colleen, that doesn't kill her. So this kid, he searches the garage and he finds this out. He douses her and the rest of the house in gasoline and he sets it ablaze. The suspect can't be named because he's underage, but he was found in the family's car smoking their cigars with his friends and the wedding ring he'd taken from Colleen's finger. I put the newspaper down and my mom asks me why I'm crying. The news goes national across the country because the crime is so violent they say the boy is being tried as an adult, which means that his image and his name can both be released and there, on the front page of the Vancouver province, what I knew all along was true. Jeremy is unpredictable and he is dangerous. The defense argues that Jeremy has fetal alcohol syndrome by nature, which means that he lacks a conscience. A psychiatrist in the case says that he shows no remorse for his actions and calls him untreatable. The judge is at a loss, and the judge says, and I quote, Jeremy is unspeakably evil. He sounds like a half-baked villain, but this was supposed to be my friend. (laughs) My friend. He gets life in prison with a chance of parole after seven years. I should feel safe, but I don't, because the fact is, Jeremy doesn't work alone. While he's locked up, more people come to torment Colleen's family. They cut the tails off their horses, they rattle their chains in the night, and I feel like my family is next on that chopping block. My anxiety is higher than it has ever been because the proceedings have taken years and not a day has gone by where I didn't flinch at every creak, crack, and moan in my house because somebody's on the roof or somebody's in the bathroom or somebody's in the basement. And as every year goes by and every family friend asks, Kyle, what have you been up to? I dread answering that question because the answer is zip, nothing. I dropped out of high school and I haven't done a goddamn thing. I wish I could tell you that I had a revelation where everything turned around and I forgave and I forgot and I felt safe in my own house, but I had a serious case of PTSD. The only cure for that was time. And to this day, I still don't have my high school diploma. But I do have my bachelor's degree. 
turns out the secret benefit to a sad story is that universities everywhere accept them. University kind of reshaped me into the person I have always wanted to be, and it gave me a profound love for storytelling. I think it also gave me back the sense of trust that I'd been missing for so long, and I'm infinitely grateful for that. It's been 13 years since I last saw Jeremy, and I don't expect to see him anytime soon. And the more I talk about it, the more I put it out there, the more I wonder, maybe I haven't seen the last of Jeremy. But every once in a while, I see a kid with that black mop and those beady little eyes and the expression way too stoic for his age. And I swear it could be him. That is all for this week's episode, folks. Don't forget that you can find more from Kyle Guest at thelaps.org. This is merchandise behind me now. And also don't forget that Risk is live in New York and Los Angeles every fourth Thursday. This coming Thursday in New York, we have Buck Angel. And James Judd, and in L.A., we will have Solomon Giorgio and Daniel Sloss. In New York, we're always at the People's Improv Theater. In L.A., we're always at the Nerdist Showroom. And then on the 29th of March, we're in Portland, and we're still taking pitches for that, Portland folks. So pitch us. The theme that night will be crisis. So if you live in Portland and you have a really juicy crisis sort of story, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And 
If you don't live in Portland, you live anywhere else in the world, and you have a juicy story of any sort, you can pitch us anytime you want at risk-show.com slash submissions. We keep our eye out. That's how we got Kyle Guest's story on today's episode. That weekend that I'm in Portland, I am also teaching a storytelling workshop. So look for that information at thestorystudio.org. There are workshops that I do one-on-one over Skype, workshops in New York and L.A. that we do in person, and we also have online video workshops that you can do in your own time. You can find out so much more about our storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs> 